First of all, I'm, I'm moved to say to my wife, I love you with all my heart. I haven't been myself lately, and I'm sorry for the way I've been. You know, it's an awesome responsibility to, to uh, be asked to proclaim God's truth. And when there's something wrong in your relationship, we need to clear that up before we do this. So that's my confession to you and my apology to you, and I love you. You know, I teach at Hope International School. I, I teach philosophy, which is what we call Bible. I teach an apologetics class. But in my former life, um, some of you may know, some of you may not, I was a lawyer. I was a prosecutor for many years. In fact, the last seven years immediately preceding me coming to Beijing, coming back to Beijing last July, I was the elected district attorney of the Ninth Judicial District in the state of Colorado on the western slope in the mountains where the air is clear and beautiful every day. The sky is blue. You never see and taste the air that you breathe. I had the privilege in the first few months I was serving to go to a, a conference in Phoenix, Arizona, a conference on prosecuting homicide cases. And the state's attorney from Peoria, Illinois, was one of the presenters there that, that afternoon. And he told us a story about when he was a young lawyer and he got up to, uh, in one of his very first trials, and as he was getting up to speak, he spilled the water that he had on council table. He spilled it all over himself in the front for all to see. And he's thinking, oh, man, I'm nervous enough, and now this happens. Quick thinking, he got up, he stood before the jury in all of his glory, and he said, you know, I'm really not as nervous as I look. I tell my prosecutors, especially the young prosecutors, if you ever go into the courtroom and you're not nervous, it's time to get out of the business because you don't care anymore about the result. So I confess to you now, I'm a little bit nervous, so please, please pray for me, raise me up to the Lord. If I ever get to the point where I'm standing before anyone proclaiming the truth of the gospel and I'm not nervous, it's time for me to not do it again or to get my heart right with God. You know, this week, I think Thursday or Friday, I think it's Friday actually, is July the 4th. The 4th of July, we call it in America, Independence Day. Reminds me of a story of these young men who were applying for a job to be a social studies teacher. The first young man walks into the interview room and the interviewer says, I've got three questions for you. The first question is this. When did America gain its independence? The young man thought for a minute and he said, well, you know, a lot of events occurred, a lot of activities took place, um, and it all came together in 76, meaning, of course, 1776. Who is the father of our country? That's the second question. He says, well, you know, it's really not fair to name one guy. There was a lot of men involved and they all did their part. Um, so let's just say there were several, several fathers of our country. He's thinking, you know, this guy... It's not bad. He's not giving all the pat answers that you would expect. He's thinking. He's a thinking man. I like this. So the, question, the third question is, is corruption a major problem in Washington, D.C.? He says, well, you know, the, the president has appointed a commission. They're studying this matter, and they're going to issue the report in a couple of months. Once the report is issued, I'll be better able to answer the question. That's, that's pretty good. I like this guy. So he's leaving the interview room, and the interviewer says, before you leave, I want to tell you this. Do not tell anybody else what the questions are. Same questions for all of the applicants. He walks out the door, the next guy gets up. He says, what are the questions? What are the questions? Tell me the questions. He says, I can't tell you the questions. I told him I wouldn't. Besides, you're competing against me for the job. Well, if you can't tell me the questions, give me the answers. 
So I, I didn't commit that I wouldn't give him the answers. So, so I gave him the answers, all three answers. So he walks into the room. The interviewer is looking at his application form, and it's, and it's not complete. He says, you know, your interview form is not, your application form is not complete. He says, what is the date of your birth? He says, well, a lot of events took place, many activities went on, and, and it all came to be in 76. The interviewer kind of looks at him with a kind of strange look and says, what is your father's name? He says, well, who am I to give credit to one man? There's lots of people who took place in this. And he's looking at him and says, are you off your rocker? Have you gone mad? Well, the president has appointed a commission to study this matter. They're going to issue their report in a couple of months. You know, we often give, question, give answers to the wrong questions. And when we do this, the answers that we give are not really true. I want to talk for a few minutes about truth. And I've lost my place. I was tooling around on the internet the other day, I guess the proper vernacular is surfing the net, and I found this story, Dateline Detroit. The top legislative body of, we'll just say a church, a denomination, in America voted by large margins Thursday to recognize same-sex marriage as Christian in the church constitution, adding language that marriage can be the union of two people, not just a man and a woman. The church voted 371 to 238 to allow ministers to celebrate same-sex marriages and 429 to 175 in favor of amending the definition of marriage in the Constitution. Now, did you get what the article said? It's just a snippet of it, but it's verbatim. It's not just that they've amended their church constitution. They recognize same-sex marriage as Christian. As Christian. Is that true? Is it? For a couple of millennia, have we missed something? In 2005, Mike Tyson gave an interview to USA Today. You remember Mike Tyson, former heavyweight champion of the world? He said this, and I quote, I'll never be happy. I believe I'll die alone. I would want it that way. I've been a loner all my life with my secrets and my pain. I'm really lost, but I'm trying to find myself. I just want to escape. I'm really embarrassed of myself and my life. I want to be a missionary. I'm really embarrassed. I think I could do that while keeping my dignity. Imagine that, being a missionary while keeping your dignity. I'm not going to be a Jesus freak, but that's what I'm going to give my life to. I love Jesus, and I believe in Jesus too. I think it's interesting. And I'm a Muslim. Listen, I got an imam, I got a rabbi, I got a priest, I got a reverend, I got them all. Sounds like he's trying to cover all his bases, right? It's the old mantra that we've heard time and time again. All roads lead to the same destination. All religions lead to the same place. That's the way of the world these days. Is that true? Ron Carlson said... In grammar school, they taught me that a frog turning into a prince was a fairy tale. In the university, they taught me that a frog turning into a prince was a fact. In grammar school, they taught me that a frog turning into a prince was a fairy tale. In the university, they taught me that it was a fact. 
Which is it? Is evolution true? Pontius Pilate had the greatest opportunity in history to get an answer to that question, the question that Ian asked a few moments ago. What is truth? Let's go back to the text and go back a few verses prior to those that were read. John 18, 33 to 38. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Pilate's getting a little indignant. He didn't expect this. Pilate, he's the governor. He's got power over this man's life, or so he thinks. He's taken aback a little bit. What, am I a Jew? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? He's making assumptions there. And sometimes Jesus has responded to his questioner with a question. And what that does is that opens up the questioner to his own assumptions. And this is one of the assumptions that Pilate had made. You're doing something wrong. You've done something wrong. What is it? They brought you to me. You must have done something wrong to justify them bringing you to me and asking me to have you executed. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Aha, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate's response, what is truth? And he walked away. He walked away. And my apologetics, it sounds like it's ringing. Is it echoing? It sounds like it's a little too high. It's okay? Okay. I'm not used to speaking, you know, with a microphone. My apologetics class at the school, we talk about truth. We have a 12-point step that shows Christianity is true. And the very first step is truth about reality is knowable. And we give a definition for truth. It's very simple. Truth is that which corresponds to its referent. Very simply, truth is telling it like it is. The three aspects of truth that I want to talk about, just briefly. Number one, truth is inescapable. You cannot deny truth without affirming it. Have you ever heard someone say, there's no such thing as truth? In the postmodern world today, especially postmodern America, lots of people say, there's no such thing as, as truth. Frank Turek, an apologist in Charlotte, North Carolina, he tells a story. He was listening to the radio, and this, this was the question. The guy was on the phone with the radio host, and he says, Jerry, Jerry, there's no such thing as truth. Frank gets on the phone and he's dialing that number. It's busy, it's busy, it's busy. He can't get in. He says, I wanted to ask the, 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 the person who said there's no such thing as truth, is that true? You see, because if it is, truth exists. There is a such thing as truth. And if it's not, then why should I believe it? You see, it's self-defeating. We, we, we teach what we call the roadrunner tactic in my apologetics class. You ever seen the, the old American cartoon, The Roadrunner? 
you know, the, the wily coyote is always after him. Roadrunner, the coyote's after you. If he catches you, he threw all that. You know, and every time, every cartoon, maybe two or three times during each cartoon, the roadrunner's zipping along and the coyote's falling right, right after him. Roadrunner gets to the, to the cliff, sidesteps, and the coyote goes over the cliff. And you see him with his feet spinning. He's got his feet firmly planted in midair. In other words, he has no foundation. So we take those self-defeating statements about truth and about lots of other things, and we show how they are self-defeating. There's no such thing as truth. Is that true? Truth is inescapable. Truth is absolute. You cannot deny its absolute nature without affirming it. Another one-liner that the unsophisticated atheists like to say is, all truth is relative. Have you heard that before? And the reason they say it, well, there's two reasons. Number one, they're unsophisticated. They don't understand that their own statement is self-defeating. Number two, we're unprepared to meet it. We don't know that their statement, we we, we know inside that this is wrong, but we don't know how to meet it. We don't know how to respond. And they know that we don't know. So we have that deer in the headlights look. Wow, I never thought of that. Yeah, maybe all truth is relative. What is that statement really saying? It is absolutely true that all truth is relative. That's the statement. It's self-defeating. Truth is inescapable. Truth is absolute. And truth is exclusive. Simple example, two plus two is four. To the exclusion of all other numbers. Since time began for eternity, two plus two will always be four. Truth is truth for everybody, every place, and at every time. It can't be, something can't be true for me, but not true for you, or true for you, but not true for me. Truth is truth. And Pilate is standing before truth. Os Guinness says this, what is truth, somebody will immediately ask. Let me answer straightforwardly. In the biblical view, truth is that which is ultimately, finally, and absolutely real, or the way it is. And therefore, it is utterly trustworthy and dependable, being grounded and anchored in God's own reality and truthfulness. And God's reality is not flawed. It is perfect. Both accuracy and authenticity are important to truth. Belief in something doesn't make it true. Only truth makes a belief true. My brother married a Mormon girl 40 years ago. 41 years ago this year. He converted to the Mormon faith. In 1991, we lost our mother. A few weeks after the ceremony, the funeral, we went out to the, uh, to the cemetery because the gravestone had finally been put in. And we went out there and looked at it for the first time. And on the way back to the, my father's house, my brother said, you know, Marty, I never would have converted if I didn't sincerely believe that my faith is true. And I said, Ron... You can believe it as sincerely as you want, but sincerity does not make falsehood true, and it never will. It never will. Only truth makes it true. Winston Churchill had a lot of great lines. One of my favorites is this. Men stumble over the truth from time to time, but most pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. Men stumble over the truth from time to time, but most pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened.
Pilate raised the most important question in life, but he didn't stick around to hear the answer. History, the workings of history, had given him to the opportunity to stumble onto this situation. He looked into the eyes of the creator of heaven and earth. He looked into the eyes of the incarnate God. He looked into the eyes of truth himself. And he walked away. He asked the greatest question of the greatest authority on the issue and then proceeded to commit the greatest crime ever committed. Squandered opportunity. Have you ever wondered what Jesus would have said to him if he had stayed around, if his intentions were honorable, and he really wanted an answer to his question? I've thought about that. And here's my scenario. I know it's probably wrong. It's what I like to think about. Governor, in a few moments, you're going to hand me over to your soldiers and the chief priests. They're going to beat me. They're going to flog me. They're going to torture me. They're going to beat me to within an inch of my life. And then they're going to put a heavy cross beam on my shoulders and make me carry it up this hill. We get up to the hill. They're going to nail me to that cross. They're going to hang me in the air there. And I'm going to die a suffering, suffocating, painful, agonizing death. They're going to mock me. They're going to thrust a spear in my side. They're going to throw dice for my clothes. And then a man is going to come and ask you for my body. He's going to put me in his tomb that's never been used before. He's going to roll the stone in front of that tomb and seal that tomb. And on the third day, Sunday morning, you watch. That tomb is going to be empty. You care to stick around, watch and wait. And you will know what truth is. You will see truth. George MacDonald said, to give truth to him who loves it not is to give him more multiplied reasons for misinterpretation. To give truth to him who loves it not is only to give him more multiplied reasons for misinterpretation. We see that all the time, don't we? We see misinterpretation of truth all the time. We see misinterpretation of the scriptures. Look at the Jesus Seminar, the so-called Jesus Seminar. You know the truth that they voted on? They came to truth by a majority vote. Is that how you arrive at truth? By voting? And the truth that they arrived at is that over 80% of what Jesus said, he didn't really say. Is that true? They love truth not. More multiplied reasons for misinterpretation. Maybe that's why Pilate did not stick around and wait for the answer. Because he loved not truth. Thomas asked much the same question of Jesus, kind of in a, in a little different manner. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus replied, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. If you abide in me, if you continue in my word, if you abide in my word, then you are indeed my disciples, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Free of what? Free of the consequences of sin. Why is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? Let me give you three quick reasons. 
First, he lived a sinless and miraculous life. Secondly, he is the fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies. And in order to do that, the odds are so astronomical as to be mathematically impossible to meet all of those prophecies. And thirdly, he predicted and accomplished his own resurrection. And that's what I want to focus on this morning is the resurrection. Apologists call some facts, the four great facts, especially William Lane Craig, the four great facts of the resurrection. Let me go through them quickly. Number one, the fact of his burial. We say, well, why, why, why is that important to the resurrection? Everybody that dies is buried. Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate and asked him for the body of Christ. When Pilate was satisfied that Jesus was indeed, in fact, dead, he consented. He gave him the body. Joseph took the body, he wrapped it in the grave linens, put it in his tomb, and he sealed that tomb. It's not what he did, but where he did it that's so important. And who he was. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was the, the body of about 70 high, high priests, the ones that were responsible for the judicial murder of Jesus. He was a member of that body, and yet he was a secret follower of Jesus. Why is that important? Because they knew where his tomb was. When the story came out that the tomb was empty, they couldn't say, ah, we went to the wrong tomb. They knew exactly whose tomb it was. They knew exactly where it was. So when they went to that tomb, it was the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. The second great fact is the fact of the empty tomb itself. Remember, the, what, what was the earliest Jewish polemic when, when the soldiers came and said, the body is gone. We've lost the body. What did the Jews tell the soldiers to do? Let's read it. Matthew 28, 11 through 15. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. This is important for two, two reasons. Number one, what did the Jews and the soldiers, the Romans, do from the very beginning? The very enemies of Christ. They made a stunning admission that the tomb was, in fact, empty. And they created a story to cover it up. They even said, go publicize the fact that the tomb is empty. They admitted it. They acknowledged it publicly. And the story that they gave, the disciples stole the body. Think about these 12 men. 11 of them died martyrs' deaths, proclaiming to the end that Jesus was risen, that Jesus was alive. And you think about this. If they were the ones who stole the body, they knew he was dead. Now, lots of people will die for a cause that they believe is true. It turns out to be false. They didn't know any better. But who do you know? How many people have you ever heard of that willingly died for a cause that they knew was a lie? Not one of these apostles, not one of these disciples ever recanted their story. They went to their deaths, some gruesome deaths, maintaining that Jesus was alive. Without the resurrection, there is no reasonable explanation 
for the data. There's no reasonable explanation for the evidence. The third fact is the postmodern postmortem appearances of Jesus. And there are 12 in all. He appeared to over 500 people at different occasions, different times, different places. He appeared to friends, believers, disciples. He appeared to skeptics and even enemies. The strongest enemy, the most ferocious enemy against the Christians at the time was Saul. He appeared to Saul. And finally, the very origin (coughs) of the Christian faith itself. Why would these men maintain this story? What did they have to gain to start this new cult, this new club? Be beaten, tortured, and killed? That's what you get for, for perpetuating a lie? The Christian faith would never have gotten off the ground had it not been for the fact of the resurrection. Dr. Paul Althaus from the University of Erlangen in Germany has this to say about it. The resurrection could not have been made in Jerusalem for one single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. I think that's true. You know, love is the supreme ethic. God is love. Truth is the supreme guideline for making good judgments in our life. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you lose either of those, you lose God. If you lose love, you lose God. If you lose truth, you lose God. You know, when When babies come into the world, they come in crying. Wouldn't it be something if when they came into the world, they came in smiling and laughing? Hey, mom and dad, it's good to be here. Boy, it's like an oven in there. I'm glad to be out. Wouldn't that be something? Crying and anguish is natural to the human condition. When a mother holds her little baby, her newborn in her arms and looks into the eyes of that beautiful angelic child and sees for the first time a smile on that baby's face. There's a relationship. There's a relationship of familiarity. There's a relationship of comfort. There is a relationship of trust. There's a relationship of safety There's a relationship of security. It's the same with Jesus. When you have Jesus in your life, when you have Jesus in your heart, there's a relationship of familiarity, of comfort, of trust, of safety, of security. Do you have that relationship? Do you? You know who Oscar Wilde was? Oscar Wilde lived a very, how shall we say, hedonistic life. His sole pursuit in life was pleasure. 
sensuality, hedonism, pleasure. As Oscar Wilde was dying, he looked into his lover's eyes, Robbie Ross, and he said, Robbie, did you ever love one of those young boys for the sake of the boy? Imagine this. This person who has lived such a vile, hedonistic life now asking in his last days about the care of somebody else, somebody that he has used and abused. What has caused this transform, transformation in thinking? What irony. Robbie says, no, I didn't. Oscar said, neither did I. Bring me a minister. Only Christ is big enough to heal this heart of mine. I don't know what happened with Oscar Wilde in those last few days. We'll know when we get to heaven. But you know what? Sometimes we wait until we clean ourselves up. I'm too vile. I'm too wretched. I'm too wicked. I'm too dirty and filthy to come to the cross, to come to Jesus, to ask him for his grace and his mercy and his love. But that's the wrong approach. My best friend in life, friend for 50 plus years, we were friends in kindergarten. He called me on New Year's Eve a few years ago. He said, Marty, I've got cancer. I've just been diagnosed with cancer. I've got a quarter-sized tumor in one lung. The other lung is paralyzed. I don't have long to live. So we kind of reminisced about our lives growing up as children and where we went as adults. I said, Jim, have you ever given your life to Jesus? And he said, I just can't. The things that I've done in my life, the place where my heart is, I don't deserve it. I said, Jim, that's the whole point. That's exactly why he went to the cross because none of us deserve it. Come to the cross. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him to come into your life. So I think about it. Well, it's a happy end of the story. This was five, six years ago. Jim's still alive. And before I came back to Beijing last year, every year we'd go back out to Los Angeles and catch a Dodger game. We were, we're, we're both Dodger fans. We're both baseball fans. Wasn't able to do that last year or this year. But he's still doing it with, with another pal of ours. The three of us, we, we made a, uh, a, a, a habit of doing it every year together. He's not only here with us, he's a brother in Christ. And he praises God every day for it. Let me leave you with one last quotation, and then I'll close. It's a rather lengthy one. It's from Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge was a British journalist, satirist, um, and later on in life, he actually became a Christian. And this is what he writes. We look back upon history, and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has spoken of the rise and fall of great ones with the ebb and flow of the moon. I look back on my fellow countrymen, the English, once upon a time dominating a quarter of the world, most of them convinced of the words of what still is a popular song, that God who made them mighty will make them mightier still. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a Reich that will last a thousand years. 
I've seen an Italian clown say that he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I've met a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, acclaimed by intellectual elite of the world as wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, and more enlightened than Ashoka. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that had the American people so desired, they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, gone. Gone with the wind. England, part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America, haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keep the motorways roaring and the smog settling. With troubled memories and painful memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam, and the victory of the Don Quixotes of the media as they charged the windmills of Watergate, all in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, gone. Gone with the wind. And yet we humans, we think we have the answer. We think we're going to fix the world. We rely on each other. We rely on, on the wisdom of mankind. We rely on technology. We're going to fix everything. Ridge goes on to say that behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomatists stands the gigantic figure of one person, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind may yet have hope, the person of Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. Jesus said, because I live, you also shall live. That, my friends, is truth with a capital T. Will you bow your heads with me? Do you know this truth? Do you have this truth? Do you abide in this truth? If not, you can. In the quiet of the moment, in the, where you're sitting right now, ask God, ask Jesus, ask this truth to come into your heart and to your life and give you that peace and that comfort and that safety and that security. Do you have this truth in your heart and that you put him in your back pocket and you've walked the way of the world? Is it bothering you? Is your conscience not letting you sleep at night? Are there things in your life that are problematic for you? Are you struggling? Is there pain? Is there grieving? Ask this truth to come back and take control of your life. And he will. He will give you that peace and that safety and that security. Father, it is an awesome responsibility to proclaim your truth to proclaim you, Jesus. And Lord, we we pray that your glory would be here today, that your spirit will fill this room 
your spirit will fill the hearts of everyone in this room so that we all will know the creator of heaven and earth who became like us, who went to the cross willingly, who was born for this purpose, and who took upon himself my sin. Everything in the past, everything in the present, all my sins in the future, forgiven because of you on the cross. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. For without that empty tomb, without the resurrection, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. We pray all these things in your beautiful, precious name. Amen.